We are working our way through that amazing collection of Jesus' best-loved teachings, known as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 uh, to 7. It'd be great if I knew you had it open uh, on your lap today, Matthew chapter 5, just read to us. The Sermon on the Mount is just 2,000 words long, and last week we knocked out one word. Woo. The first word. In fact, the first word of each of the first nine paragraphs. It's the important biblical word, blessed. And it's such a misunderstood word that I tried to set the idea of being blessed in the context of what I reckon is one of the Bible's most compelling ideas. The idea is this, obeying God is participating in his genius, the genius built into the fabric of the world and expressed in his instructions for life. God's commandments are not arbitrary. They are his genius, and it's the same genius that created the world that then gave us instructions to live by. And to help us sort of get our heads around this uh, concept, I asked us to uh, imagine the mighty Leotorp cabinet system by Ikea, apparently one of the most complex Ikea products on the market. And uh, I asked us to think about the genius of Ikea is built into the product itself, but it's also expressed in the instructions that come with the product. It's the same genius, and you are free to not worry about the instructions. Right? You can innovate if you like. You can, you know, because you're tired, skip over steps 10 to 12 if you really want to. Or you can express your own individuality by leaving aside the screw at step 50 if you really want to. But you won't be doing yourself any favours, was the point I tried to make. That kind of individuality and self-expression is actually the path to not being able to put together the mighty Leotorp. There's only one way to participate in the purpose of the thing. And that is to participate in the mind of the manufacturer by following the instructions. And the point I tried to make was that obedience of God works on the same logic. God's genius is built into the structure of creation itself and expressed in his instructions for life. Therefore, when you obey God, say, obey the Sermon on the Mount, you are blessed, not just in the trivial sense of God rewarding you with a prize for good behavior, but you are blessed when you obey God in the profound sense that you are participating in the mind of the Maker and enjoying the very purpose of your existence. But how does that all fit with the opening lines of the Sermon on the Mount. Especially as you look at those opening lines, uh, the first two beatitudes, they're called, the blessing statements. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn. Mourn. There's not much enjoyment there, right? So how does this blessing go with grieving or mourning? 
Well, there is enjoyment here, sort of. It's a yes and no thing, because at the heart of Jesus' teaching, all over the Gospels, is a tension. A tension between the world as it is now, with its mix of beauty and frustration, and the world as it will be when God's kingdom comes. And this tension between the present and the future is everywhere in Jesus' teaching, including in, say, the famous Lord's Prayer, which also comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Think of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, we pray for the future kingdom to come, but we also long for God's will to be done here and now. Yes, there is a future hope, but there is also present reality. And this tension between the present and the future is front and center in the opening section of the Sermon on the Mount, known as the eight Beatitudes or blessing statements. Notice as you glance down at Matthew chapter 5, looking at the Beatitudes, notice that most of them are about something in the future. So you look at the second Beatitude, right, there in verse 4. Those who mourn will be comforted, right? That's a future tense in English and in the original language behind it. And then it says, uh, blessed are the meek, for they will, will inherit the earth. Again, it's a future thing. It's a future tense and so on. But the first and last of the Beatitudes are in the present tense. And this is pretty important to spot. So look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's a present tense. And then verse 10, the last of the eight Beatitudes, says the same thing but about the persecuted. The persecuted, it says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't want to get too technical for a second, but the repetition of this expression, theirs is the kingdom of heaven at the first Beatitude, theirs is the kingdom of heaven at the last Beatitude, is a deliberate literary device or a device of public oratory known as an inclusio. And we've talked about this before. An inclusio is simply where in a section, the opening line and the closing line of a section say the same thing, and it's a way of saying this is one thematic package. Though there are lots of words in between the top and bottom line, they are all generally about the same thing. And this is true of the eight Beatitudes. They are all about one thing. The tension of living now in light of the future kingdom. Living now in light of the future kingdom. We have foretastes of the kingdom now, but we wait for the full realisation of the kingdom in the future. As the very famous British theologian John Stott says in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, the promises of Jesus in the Beatitudes have both a present and a future fulfillment. We enjoy the first fruits now. The full harvest is yet to come. The future tense in the Beatitudes emphasizes their certainty and not merely their futurity. 
their futureness. We know now the blessedness of participating in the mind of the maker and enjoying the purpose of creation. We have that now. But we also wait for the full realization of God's purpose in creation when his kingdom comes and makes everything whole and everything just. And while we wait, there will be mourning, grieving, and frustration at times. And I don't just mean frustration with the world out there, all the bad, nasty, non-Christians who persecute us. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. Because notice the very first beatitude, the first thing Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is that the problem starts in me, not out there. Look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I regard this as the most remarkable opening line once we understand its meaning. And Matthew regards it as remarkable, and he has done some pretty cool things to build up our expectations for this opening line. I want to show you just two things he's done to build our expectations. The first thing is he's told us there is a giant crowd listening to this. If you just read verses 1 and 2 before the Beatitudes begin, you might not know what sort of crowd is there, but if you just look at the paragraph before in 425, it says, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. That's the mob that's there when he gives the Sermon on the Mount. So he's built up our expectations, a giant crowd about to listen to this, but then... Verses 1 and 2 of Matthew chapter 5 offer the grammatical equivalent of a drum roll. You may not think that exists, but it does right here. The grammatical equivalent of a drum roll. Matthew in verses um, 1 and 2 uses seven verbs in one sentence. I bet you have never written a sentence with seven verbs in it. It's crazy. Now Matthew's Greek is excellent, so we know he doesn't sort of normally write clumsy. But here, he deliberately piles up the verbs, and our English translators, if you look down at your English translation, have tried to help us out by tidying it up a little bit. They've spread the verbs over three sentences, and they've only translated six of them anyway. But here is what Matthew literally says before he lets you hear the opening line of the Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the crowds, he ascended the mountain, and sitting down, his disciples came to him, and so opening his mouth, he taught them, saying, I mean, come on. That's just over the top. And the effect is to slow things down so that we listen, concentrate. This is the opening line of the Messiah's manifesto. Drum roll, please. It's kind of what he's saying. And then, only then, does he let us know the opening line of the Messiah's manifesto. And look at it. It's a call to admit our spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Spirit doesn't mean your emotions, doesn't mean your mental set. It means your inner self before God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who know their bankruptcy before God. So consider this. The richest ethical discourse in world history begins by naming our ethical poverty. I really like the way the Canadian-born theologian Don Carson puts this poor in spirit phrase. Poverty of spirit, he says, is the personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. It is a conscious confession of unworth before God. As such, it is the deepest form of repentance. When you know that your inner self before God has no credit, you've come to know poverty of spirit. And if you're having trouble getting your head around this, why don't we do a little test tonight? Ready? I've got a little test for you. I'm going to read a random statement from the Sermon on the Mount. And I want us all to give ourselves, privately, a score out of 10. And we'll just make it easy on us, just the last seven days. Ready? Score out of 10. Here we go. Anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go the extra mile. Love your enemies. Be careful not to practice your righteousness before others to be seen by them. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body what you will wear. And if you still think you're doing pretty well, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I was doing so well up to the word anyone. How did you do? If these teachings are the true ethical riches, who of us is not a pauper? And yet here is the most precious truth you will ever hear. If this is true, this is the most precious thing you could ever, ever know. To all who admit the poverty of their inner self before God, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Huh? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. My goodness. We enter the kingdom not by performing the Sermon on the Mount, but by admitting we haven't and can't and have no right to the kingdom in the first place.
then the kingdom is yours. Because as the gospel unfolds, it becomes pretty clear that the whole meaning of this is that Jesus lived the perfect life none of us could live. And he gave up his life as a sacrifice on our behalf on the cross. A perfect life for our fallen life. So that he bore our judgment, we could be forgiven. His riches cover our debt before God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wow. I had a fascinating conversation with an ABC journalist during the week. Uh, He very politely told me that he liked some bits of the Christian faith. Just not the bits about human guilt and divine mercy, he said. And his argument was, this could crush the human spirit. If you tell people that they're sinful and they've got to depend on the mercy of God, it'll crush their spirit. He said, I much prefer the idea that we have within us all of the resources that we need to redeem ourselves, to remedy ourselves and the world. And I said to him, actually, I think, therefore, the shoe is on the other foot. I think what you've just said is the recipe for crushing the human spirit. And I asked him to imagine growing up in a family where you've got to make the first 15, get straight A's and never get into trouble to be loved by your parents. That performance mentality is the recipe for crushing the human spirit. I said, Christians are more like kids who grow up knowing that they are loved through and through despite their lack of performance. That's where the true freedom, the true flourishing really comes. And I would say to all of us here tonight, here is this most precious truth. As we make our way through the Sermon on the Mount over these next three months, there are going to be moments when you, when you look at the text and say, I can't do that. I am unworthy of all of this. And I want you to remind yourself, yes, exactly. And yours is the kingdom. Blessed are those who know that their inner self has no credit with God. For you can receive God's mercy, God's riches. Now, once we understand the first beatitude, the second beatitude flows logically. And in case I've set you into a panic, let me say we're going to just do the second beatitude tonight, and not all eight of them, and we'll pick up with the third beatitude uh, next week. But I do want to focus on this second one, because I think it's linked to the first in a very special way. If we lament the poverty of our own soul, we will rightly grieve over the injustice in the world. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn or grieve, for they will be comforted. I don't think Jesus is referring to normal grief of, say, the loss of a loved one or something like that, though I think there is a secondary application to that. 
I'm pretty sure Jesus has a specific type of grieving and mourning in mind. And, and most commentators say that Isaiah 61, our Old Testament reading tonight, lies behind the Beatitudes. And in particular, this mourning turning to comfort idea. Let me read it to you. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. This is a prophecy written centuries before Jesus. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, here it is, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. The particular grieving or mourning that Jesus has in mind is grieving and mourning at the injustice, robbery, and wrongdoing of the world. And I want to make what seems to me a very basic point that unfortunately is sometimes lost on the church. The demeanor of the Christian, this side of God's kingdom, will often be grief at the state of the world. I don't mean judgmentalism, please be clear. I don't mean the judgmentalism for which we are famous. No, I mean a humble melancholy that first sees the evil in my own heart and then and only then looks out at the injustice of the world and grieves. I caught myself just this last week missing this whole point and becoming a little Pharisee. A little high and mighty looking down on others kind of guy. I, I like to think of myself as someone who's pretty non-judgmental, especially on the big, you know, hot button issues of our day. Okay? I won't name them. You, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty non-judgmental on all those. But apparently on the mundane things, I'm a complete Pharisee. Here's what happened. I think it was Monday night. Buff and I were watching the ABC News, and there was a special report, an investigative report, on the housing market here in Sydney. And some commission had uncovered this deep scam at the heart of the real estate agency industry in the city. And the scam went like this. Real estate agents, apparently in the hundreds, have been exposed of telling vendors, those wanting to sell their properties, uh, one price that their property will go for, but telling prospective buyers a much, much lower price to get them interested. Now, this is actually illegal, but what they'd found is that the real estate agents had found a way of getting around the law. So the one selling the property is really interested in that high price. The one wanting to buy the property gets told a different price, and so they all flock to the auction. But here's, here's what happens as a result of this deceit. Tons of young families trying to break into the property market are getting sucked in 
um, spending thousands of dollars on inspections and reports on properties they have no hope at all of getting. And they only discover they had no hope in about 30 seconds of the auction starting. It's robbery. It's injustice. It's apparently endemic. But here's my point. I sat there watching this, so high and mighty, so superior and indignant on behalf of all those trying to break into the property market, including myself. <laughs> and I caught myself, and it, probably it's only because I was at the same time reflecting on the first two Beatitudes all week, it's probably only because of that, I, I caught myself and thought, that's not the mind of God. I don't stand in a position of superiority and look down on anyone. How can I possibly? Am I so innocent? Do I never tell different things to different people to get my own way? Do I never manoeuvre to put myself first? Do I not crave a little bit more? Of course I do. And my knowledge of that should temper my feeling about the injustice in the world. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I was hugely misunderstood this morning. It's entirely my fault. So please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying Christians should never have any moral outrage. I'm not saying that we should all be sad monks on a mountain in a monastery somewhere, you know, just passively going, oh, where is the world? That's not my point. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount is pretty soon going to say, actually, God's people will be, a, will be peacemakers. The seventh beatitude says that. We'll work for justice in the world. We'll work to redress poverty and all of that. Yes, we are to be active, but here's the point I'm trying to make. Amidst our grief at the injustice of the world and our action to redress the injustice of the world, we will not be judgmental. We mourn. We don't judge. If you know your own poverty of spirit before God, you will be quick to mourn and slow to judge. Quick to mourn, slow to judge. I think this is the basic stance of the Christian in a fallen world. And I think there's comfort here, right here. Jesus says those who mourn will be comforted. And I reckon that's both future and present. Of course it's future, because when God's justice comes, oh, fantastic. God will make good on every act of evil in the world. He will restore everything that is broken. All grief will be comforted, objectively. But here's the thing. We know now that evil won't win. That's a terrific comfort. We know the end of the story. We know that justice will prevail. And more than that, we have God's Spirit in us, supernaturally granting us peace in a chaotic world and empowering us to work for God's will on earth as it is in heaven now. 
All of that is a terrific comfort. We have foretastes of the comfort of the coming kingdom. Let me close by saying this. The Sermon on the Mount is God's genius. God's genius. And we are called to participate in the mind of the maker. And I reckon this involves admitting the poverty of our spirit before God, trusting the free gift of the kingdom, acting in the world to bring justice, and grieving wherever we see injustice. When we do that, we are blessed. We are doing what we are made for. We're participating in genius. We are living for the future kingdom now. So, Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom, clarity, about ourselves and about your word. That we might depend on you for everything. Trust in your grace for all our fallenness. And Lord, that we might look at the world and not judge it, but grieve and seek to redress. Father, we so pray for an outpouring of your spirit on us individually and as a church that we might embody your mind in this place. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.